The title of this evening's talk is Craving for Certitude. You see, obviously, in order to live our life fully, we need to be totally present with it. Totally present with our interaction with both the inner and outer world. And yet, more often than not, we tend to bypass this experience of being present because our attention is focused on how to anticipate the future, how to turn each experience to our advantage and use it to satisfy the cravings of our ego. In particular, cravings for predictability, for ownership, and for self-identity. Today's talk will focus primarily on a craving for predictability, for certitude. And then in the next two days, I will address respectively the craving for ownership and the craving for self-identity. Ordinarily, whether we are aware of not or not, we set our mind to orchestrate our life to ensure predictable outcomes, be it in the area of profession, of finances, relationships, of running a retreat, or whatever we choose to prioritize as a measure of our success. Now, when we do so, was what is foremost in our mind is not the specific outcome we want to reach, but that it, it, the outcome be certain, be guaranteed. What matters is a sense of security that we derive from avoiding the unpredictability of things, which for many of us, at one time or another, is truly frightening. Consider, for instance, just a small thing, the uncertainty, the anxiety that often accompanies the process of moving to a new home, as it's been more than once discussed in a Wednesday group by people who were affected by that, were ready to move. An anxiety that's not due to something, some particular problem with the move, just that the move makes things uncertain. There's an unsettledness in that. 
still not all of us are predisposed to be anxious about the same uncertainties. Yet in all probability we have all been vulnerable and we continue to be vulnerable at least at time to the anxiety of the unpredictable. Hmm? Just check it out for a moment. So that's what my talk was going to be about. So here comes the body of my talk. In the first half, I'll examine in some more detail how this fear of uncertainty pervades our mind, leading us to seek the alternative of certitude. In the second half, I'll explore other ways in which we can be in the world. In the Buddhist tradition, the path of certitude, as I call it, is epitomized by the luxurious and totally protected life of young, young Siddhartha Gautama, the Indian prince that would eventually become the Buddha. Siddhartha's father the ruler of a kingdom in the north of the Indian continent, kept Siddhartha enclosed in the luxury of his various palace. In fact, Siddhartha's various palace. With no opportunities to even witness, let alone experience, the uncertainties of actual life. In doing so, the father hoped that his son, Siddhartha, would remain trapped in a system that would inescapably lead the young prince to succeed him as the king. And yet, the young prince, Siddhartha, was not as compliant as his father had hoped. At one point, the prince managed to persuade his charioteer, sorry, guy, his taxi driver, <laughs> his limousine driver, I should say, to take him on a tour. When the father heard of this, he ordered that the area where Siddhartha with his charioteer might transit be clean up. Much as they do nowadays when foreign dignitaries go to visit uh, uh, another country and they have and they avoid driving them through a shanty town. But the cleansing did not work. Siddhartha, in the, that 
little trip could cite of three scenes that revealed to him that life was different from he had been made to believe. He got sight of a very sick man, a very old man, and a corpse. And representing aging, sickness, and death. This is not supposed to be part of his experience. And then he ran into a fourth man, a wandering monk. And that inspired Siddhartha to become a monk himself. So he left the palace. He dropped his royal career and entered the path of uncertainty, which was also the path of enlightenment, and eventually became the Buddha. And for many of us, and that includes aspects of my own life, like Siddhartha, when he was enclosed in his palaces, we tend to journey through life enclosed in all sort of artificial scenarios, caverns call it. Not just external caverns, like Siddhartha's palace, but enclosures in our mind. After all, in the story of, of Siddhartha, the story of the Buddha, these palaces are really allegories for the enclosures in the mind. William Blake, the 18th century poet, English poet and painter, very famously, famously said, and I quote, Man has closed himself up till he sees all things, all things through narrow chinks of his cavern. As for us, what criteria do we use to select what to let into our mental caverns through its chinks? Often enough, the setup of those chinks, holes in the caverns, the screening that we perform, hinges upon whether we are what we are going to let in contributes to stabilize our inner world, in which case we let it in, or to destabilize, in which case we kick it out. Why such thirst for stability, for certitude? Because we can only cling to that which is stable. And clinging is a favorite way to create the I, the me, the self, the one who clings. 
and creating and solidifying the I has become, unfortunately, a priority in our lives. True, of course, uh, here yeah, I'm a guy who doesn't even have a cell phone. Um, you might say, well, I mean, this guy doesn't know about all these electronic devices that create chinks uh, in our caverns all over the place. That's not so. On the contrary. You know, I see people with their uh, fingers on this... Uh, Things, whatever you call them. And, and they keep going, 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 until they see a chink they want to go through. So this is massive selectivity of what to look at. Surely there are lots of things to look at, but also lots of ways of selecting whatever it is that we are going to let in. And what we let in is, as I said, that which seems to solidify more effectively our sense of self. Solidify who we think we are or who we wish to continue to be or to become stable, solid, and changeable as much as we can. And then, of course, there are the collective caverns as well, in which we experience ourselves as part of a group, a country, whatever. In, in the public arena, the such caverns and the chinks are largely created by the media. I mean, it's incredible all the th the selectivity of the media, what they let us see and what they ignore completely. They they are there to filter reality, not to tell us what's happening. Of course. Overwhelming example of that is North Korea, absolutely. But we are doing the same things in much more sophisticated and uh, subtle ways, uh, under the guise of freedom. North Koreans don't even have to pay lip service to freedom. So the point of so such caverns is not so much the collective caverns. It's not so much to create the individual I, but to create the collective we. Not the ego, but as somebody called it, the we go. Same difference, I see. Strategies we use to create this caverns are whether individual or collective, are plentiful. I've mentioned the selective use of the internet, I've mentioned the manipulation of the media, but the list of filtering devices is enormous. 
I'll just consider a few more here. A major filter functions through language. Language circumscribes our patterns of thought. And that thus limits our experience of the real. Again, language is fine, of course, here. You're trying to, to use it to convey something. But the important thing is to, to be able to use it to convey something that goes beyond language. So, language has this ability to create entities out of the blue. To entify things. Just, just take, take this little word, I or me. Or mine, if you will, or myself. The moment I formulate any of those words, I fabricate an entity that doesn't have a real existence as such. I create a niche for myself as a separate being. This power of words, of course, is particularly tied to the long history. Sometimes uh, a person with some special vision tries to create a, a new word, but it's not the same thing. Take, for instance, Tignerhan with his um, uh, attempt to counter the limitations of I, me, myself by creating the expression to interbe or it's a variable, interbeing a noun and of course he made a very good point in doing that but is there any chance that interbeing will have any traction in our conversation? Uh, is there any chance that uh, some speaker, like I'm speaking here today, instead of saying, as I was saying a moment ago, I would say, as this interbeing was saying a moment ago. <laughs> it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't catch. It's not just that we identify ourselves, of course is we identify everything that surrounds us, persons, things, items, you know, with the help of the traditions of language. And take this ability to identify things through words takes this special style of its own in the world of commerce is called branding. Branding. Brand names offer us an often irresistible abodes in which we can dwell in the world of elegance. The name may be Calvin Klein or Christian Dior. In the world of sports, the New York Yankees, whatever. It, it carries weight. 
and it's just the bread. Science, as scientists will probably know very well, has a knack for creating such separate entities. It plucks items out of a flow of things by calling them atoms or genes or whatever number of particles have been identified in space, in subatomic space. And by doing that, endows them with the appearance of being totally distinct. And that, as a former geneticist, I know it doesn't really work for genes. And uh, as I've been told by friends of mine, that it doesn't work for subatomic particles either. In our search for certitude, we are keen not only to see items as fixed entities, but also to adopt fixed patterns of behavior. I catch myself doing that so often, you know. Sure, I know. In order to wash dishes, for instance, it's nice to have a routine and put things always in the same place and order, more or less so has practical advantages. But for me, I can easily see that my addiction to routine goes well beyond that. It has to do primarily with my determination, at least part of me has this determination to construct a predictable world. I'm not saying I succumb to that, but it's there. Let me share a story that doesn't have that much to do with me, but with uh, my life uh, as a graduate student at Caltech. At that time, I was, I was a biology student then, and um, in order to supplement my income, I did some babysitting. I advertised myself as a babysitter, and one of my clients was a young professor called Ed Lewis, a young member, not professor, a young member of the faculty, research faculty. Actually, eventually, he got the Nobel Prize. So, pretty good stuff. Um, well, he wasn't my client. His daughter was my client, actually. Before each babysitting section, session, his wife, Pam, would take me along, go over with me the various spots in the house where the daughter, few years old, five years maybe, four, can't remember, the daughter had left her dolls and her favorite toys because she had gotten into the habit 
of asking where everything was before she went to sleep. In other words, the, the security that she felt by knowing where everything that mattered to her was placed. Once I, I first checked out the house, then I went down the list with her, and then she fell asleep happily and secure. So, but you know there are many examples so far. Thirst for predictability. In this little girl's case, the, the search for knowing that when she wakes up, she knows where everything is. Okay. So much for certitude. Now, the central question is, how do we transcend this addiction to certitude? So it's not a matter of, of criticizing ourselves or demonizing ourselves because we have these tendencies. We, we all have been trained that, like that. One way or another, we have all, I'm sure, or most of us anyway, traces of that question is, how do we transcend it? How do, do we get out of our caverns? Where are, or how do we discover for ourselves a space where each moment can be unpredictable and unique? Unlike the way this Indian sage J. Krishnamurti put it some 60 years ago. Let me share this article with you. came out uh, oh, in 2009 in the Mountain Record. He says, a mind that is crowded, encased in facts, in knowledge, is it capable of receiving something new, sudden, and spontaneous? If your mind is crowded with the known, is there any space in it to receive something that is of the unknown? Surely, Knowledge is always of the known, and with the known we are trying to understand the unknown, something which is beyond measure. What, of course, what Krishnamurti calls here the known is what Blake called the caverns. How are you going to understand something if we are enclosed in our cavern, how can, can we understand what's outside, which you only see through little chinks? To be aware, here goes on Krishnamurti, 
To be aware of something that is not the projection of the known, there must be elimination through understanding, th elimination through understanding of the process of the known. Why is it that the mind clings always to the known? Is it not because the mind is constantly seeking certainty, security? Its very nature is fixed in the known. The unknown can come into being only when the known is understood, dissolved, and put aside. That's extremely difficult because the more moment you have an experience of anything, the mind translates it into terms of the known and reduces it to the past. Do I not know that? As a scientist, that was what I always constantly, relentlessly did. I do not know if you have ever noticed that every experience is immediately translated into the known, given a name, tabulated and recorded. So the movement of the known is knowledge, and obviously such knowledge is a hindrance. So how do we transcend this hindrance? To discover anything new, you must start on your own. You must start on a journey completely de denuded, especially of knowledge. Because it is very easy through knowledge and belief to have experiences. But the, those experiences are merely the products of self-projection and therefore utterly unreal, false. If you are to discover for yourself what is the new, it is no good carrying the burden of the old, especially the burden of knowledge. When you want to find something new, when you are experimenting with anything, your mind has to be very quiet, has it not? If your mind is crowded, filled with facts, knowledge, they act as an impediment to the new. The difficulty for most of us is that the intent of the mind has become so important, so predominantly significant, that it interferes constantly with anything that may be new, with anything that may exist simultaneously with the known. Of course, this invitation to up, open up to the new, to be present to the new, is not in any way an invitation to replace the old certainty by a new certainty. That's not what Krishnamurti or myself are talking about. One example. The Buddha, 
who of course had to articulate his teachings with words, was very careful not to endow his words now with a special meaning to replace the old meaning, not to create a cavern with his words. So at one point, he goes out of the way to examine all the words that he has been used to talk about what we can call the end of the path, the end of suffering, call it enlightenment or whatever. And he came up with a list of words that he uses regularly, 34 words. 34 words. Why use so many words so as not to brand it with one word, not to give it solidity with one word. Just, it's not the words that we have to consider, it's experience. Of course, language is a useful means of communication, but not a substitute for the real work that needs to be done. In the Buddhist scriptures, there's a passage in which uh, the Buddha talks to Bahia, who is a, a trainee who wants to learn. This is what the Buddha says to him. Bahia, you should train yourself thus. In reference to the scene, there will be only the scene. In reference to the herd, only the herd. In reference to the sensed, only the sensed. In reference to mental phenomena, only mental phenomena. That is how you should train yourself. When for you there will be only the scene in reference to the scene, only the herd in reference to the herd, only the sensed in reference to the sense, only the mental phenomena in reference to the mental phenomena. Then, Bahia, there's no you in connection with that. When there's no you in connection with that, there's no you there. When there's no you there, yeah, neither here nor yonder nor between the two. This, just this, is the end of suffering. So, you know, to experience directly and really what you experience, no construct, then see what opens up. So the Buddha is asking Bahia and all of us, of course, to be present with our senses, period. To stop using our senses to create either the I, the me, or the stage from which the I can operate. When we stop doing so, when we drop our relentless search for certitude, 
then, and only then, can we prevail over the narrow chinks in our cover and open up to the full spectrum of who we are. Let's just sit in silence for a few moments.